Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick Orvis, and I'm here this week to talk with Ben Ferber. Hi. Our GM and writer for Saving 73 JPEGs I Desperately Need, our Paranoia campaign. We're going to talk a little bit about theater, tabletop games, and the game that he ran for us. Thanks for joining us, Ben. I'm glad to be here. Always, always glad to be here. (laughs) Um, So to start off, I'm wondering if you could tell us all a little bit about your background as a playwright, director, theater artist of, as I know, many, many hats. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, that's it. I I, like, oh, God, what am I? Um, That's part of what I think is interesting about doing an actual play is like, I kind of get to do everything (laughs) that I do because (laughs) like, what am I? I'm a theater artist. Um, But like I started as a director, but I also started as a writer and I am a writer most of all, but I am also a performance artist slash actor, but like really more of a performance artist. But like often I do all three of those things at the same time, but I am also a sound and projection designer and I also do that usually. So like what is my theater? But you know, something that I'm working on. (laughs) I think that's sort of what it ends up being. But I, so I don't know, I have done theater all my life. Um, I studied theater at Berlin College. Uh, I got a degree in it there. I worked at a bunch of uh, nonprofit theaters, um, including Portland Stage, which is where I met you and also Todd. Well, I met Todd before I met you, but then I met you while I was working there as a designer, actually. Yep. <laughs> um, yep, I was sound designing one of their shows a couple of years after I was an intern there. Um, but I also worked at Manhattan Theater Club. I worked at William Stone Theater Festival. Um, I did a lot of independent producing. I worked with a lot of smaller companies in like their offices while also being like that weird multi-hyphenate theater artist thing that I am. And the work that I do, and I know you're going to ask me about this later, but the work that I do tends to be about technology, the internet, and the cultures around that, which sort of led to like me sort of stepping back from producing um, so I could make more money and also like maybe focus a little more on work. Uh, it ended up being making more money, but I also do work in tech, which dear God, the things I've learned working in tech and dear God, the things I will write when I no longer work in tech. Um <laughs> And as I was saying to you before we started recording, I think also working in tech certainly has uh, clued me into the sort of dystopian nightmare we do exist in, which I then took a break from to write a dystopian nightmare uh, piece of fiction. Um, which is just fun. But anyway, all that to say, like, that is my theater. And, you know, I've written a couple of plays. I've done a lot of like small things. Uh, I've done a lot of things where like I go on stage and talk about something strange like fan fiction or I make up things that were deleted from the Internet. Um, That's a show that was going to happen this year and then definitely got canceled (laughs) because of the (laughs) pandemic. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've rambled to oblivion. No, no, this is great. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the. Uh, I I recall that you used to identify yourself on your website or something as a technophilic playwright. I think. Oh, I still uh, do. I was gonna say, is, is that still? It's still technophilia. It hasn't Absolutely. become something darker. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. I mean, it is dark. It is very dark. It's a very, very dark fetish that I have. (laughs) (laughs) And we haven't even started talking about Vore yet, which I'm sure we'll get to sometime. Oh, boy. (laughs) Please, if you don't know what that is, do Google it and have a great time. (laughs) 
how has that um i mean i i know i'm thinking of the work that of work of yours that i have seen or worked on myself yeah like let's play play and i'm very online um and, and i'm curious I, I guess what do you find so fascinating about technology and the sort of hyper-connected world we all live in I think that writers, I think any writer who is writing something uh, meaningful, at least to them, is writing about something that they deeply understand and like that they care about. So, you know, they write about their home or they write about like their culture or they write about like their people or, you know, and that can mean so many things. Right. Like I think like Oscar Wilde was writing about his culture like as much as like Lorca was writing about his culture as much as like I am writing about my culture and like Mm -hmm. what I think a lot of people think modern culture is completely and by people I mean playwrights uh, completely excludes technology the internet and the ways that we communicate for 90% of our days Um, which I think is why like very few people have been equipped to tell stories right now because well the stories they've been telling have been like, oh, I'm in a basement, so I can't talk on the cell phone. The humans. <laughs> I fucking hate that place so much. Um, sorry. <laughs> I always get into this, but um, like, I hate that play because it deliberately avoids something that is part of its world in order to exist present day, big scare quotes, while, you know, being a play that could have been written in the 90s. And I reject that. I completely reject that. And I think that, like, if you're writing a play about today and people aren't online, um, who are you writing about? Like, because most people are online. Most people have conversations online. Most people, you know, have... I I talk to my friends via text message very, very, very much. Some of them as much as I talk to them with my voice. Some of them less, some of them more. Um, Some people I talk to, the vast majority, via messaging. And that's just a feature of life. So like, I think that as my personal experience and me wanting to lean into that has led into a lot of my work being what it is. I like, I think that I uh, look at and I'm often part of niche communities online. So like one of my plays is about hackers because like those are people who I am interested in. And like, I did in fact study computer science. And so like some of those people I studied, some of those people I just like am familiar with because I like am sort of in those communities or observing those communities. And like, I work in tech and like so just from an understanding of that community and a fascination with like particularly the big personalities in it like I wrote a play about some of them and like did that play uh foresee the suicide of Aaron Swartz yes it did uh, <laughs> like that is a thing that I wrote about a hacker getting in trouble for uh you know provocative public ab- activism in like the hacker I wrote about it like is a lot different from Aaron Swartz but like getting back into a legal corner and killing himself. And like, that's what happened there. Um, I wrote a play about like gamers on YouTube because I watched a lot of gamers on YouTube. Um, and the sort of infighting that happens in that community. Um, and like in the play I wrote, one of them, uh, kind of goes far right, uh, when he's replaced on his show. Um, and replaced on his show by a woman of color. And like, not exactly that happened, but like that has happened to some people 
absolutely the youtube gaming sphere um like so in i you know i wrote a there's a joke in one of my more recent plays like about swatting never having killed anyone yet and you know after i wrote that it, it happened two months later so like i the problem is I don't mean to brag that I'm foreseeing the future because it's actually a curse. And if you are a wizard, can you please take it off of me? <laughs> but um, what where I am is somewhere where like a lot of people in the theater community just like aren't looking because I think the theater community is kind of an old fashioned place in a lot of ways. Like a lot of the people, a lot of the gatekeepers in it are very old fashioned people. And I think a lot of the sort of people who want to get into it aren't um, and want to do more work and want to be seen more aren't. But like the people you learn about and the people you see when you first walk in the door certainly aren't. (laughs) Um, And that's sort of where I've made my own personal niche um, because I was writing about something that everyone, every time someone sees my work, they're like, I had no idea about this. I'm so scared. And I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's interesting, but all right. And I think it is also scary. And, uh, you know, we live in a world where a lot of people don't understand the like background cultural forces that are now being foregrounded due to mass communication. And like, have people from the far right and people from a lot of like weird, weird, weird places always existed. Absolutely. They have, um, has the internet brought them to everyone else in a way that like now everyone gets to see them. Yes. Like no one knew who incels were until a couple of years ago. Um, now everyone knows who incels were. It doesn't mean they weren't there. It means that, uh, they were, they were sort of running silent. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I think that uh, any any art that I make, I'm trying to sort of expose something or talk about something that like I know about because I'm there watching it. And I think a lot of the people who I know in theater don't know about. Yeah. And that dovetails nicely with uh, with my next question, which is going to be so paranoia. What uh, appealed to you about paranoia both the like game and the the kind of crazy techno dystopian setting of it because if i recall correctly i i think you brought this idea to us am i remembering that correctly yeah i did yeah um what was the other one that um percy was suggesting oh what was the other game because there was another one that he was like really interested in doing and i was like oh, i yeah. like this but i like i like paranoia and then i like i, I sold it <laughs> i sold it to y'all basically yes yeah i don't remember what the other game was now i'm sure we'll get to it eventually but um so i got turned on to paranoia when um i don't know if you know the podcast hello from the magic tavern i do yeah 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 for those of you who don't know what it is it's an improv podcast where um a guy has fallen through a dimensional rift into a sort of fantasy world, like Dungeons and Dragons-esque fantasy world. Um, And he and his co-hosts, who are a shapeshifter and a wizard, um, interview people from that world. Um, It's fun and very, very stupid. The cast of that show uh, went on a actual play podcast called One Shot, which um, one of their guests, James D'Amato, hosts. And they first did a one shot, like, set in their own world, but, like, with D&D rules. And then, like, a year or two later, they did a one shot um, of Paranoia, 
where the three of them were troubleshooters. And I had not heard of Paranoia until that one shot. And then I got very interested in it. So I read all about it. Um, it had been kickstarted pretty recently. So like I checked out the most recent edition, which was kickstarted. Um, I also read a little bit about the older editions and like a little material about them. Um, but I like the new one a lot. Um, it's basically always just been like a funny, funny system with sort of light rules. And that appealed to me because I think a lot of people get intimidated by games that are not D&D. Like certainly I do, because I, I think culturally we all kind of know the rules of D&D. And then when you change that, like when you do something else, you're kind of playing Calvin Ball. And Paranoia as a game like is kind of Calvin Ball um, structurally. And it's certainly like when listening to it, it sounds like Calvin, Calvin Ball. And I can tell you playing it, it is Calvin Ball. <laughs> and that's great. Um, I will say also, like, I like that it is a far future setting um, and like it's sort of a cyberpunk setting. I wouldn't really call it cyberpunk, like, but it's, you know, it's high technology. Yeah, um, it's got that sort of energy without quite the punk part i feel like right and it's you know it's cyberpunk with the clown nose on really because like yeah. it just makes me think of when i was i did my thesis in college about harold pinter and so you know i was trying to be all serious and uh, you know really get into the the politics of pinter and then what i actually did was like i directed his funniest play the hot house which is like an absolute clown show my, my point being like the harold pinter was always a very 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 political like leftist writer and where he is at his most successful is where it is so insane as to be very funny. Um, and he absolutely alienates people with humor mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that was sort of my, like my brain inside me screaming, like, please, please, please don't be uptight. Like, please, please, please do something fun. And so like, you know, I did Harold Pinter with a clown nose because that's, I think the best way you can do him. And like, I also love sci-fi and so like but I love sci-fi that has like clown noses on it like Douglas Adams like he's always wearing a clown nose but like even sort of like you know dystopian sci-fi like the Octavia Butler's the Arizona Caleb Grimes the Philip K. Dick's like all the like sci-fi that they do like it also is pretty funny <laughs> um, mm-hmm. when like this the scenarios that are the most iconic are such that they're they're so high concept that when you hear them said out loud they sound very funny and you've you have no choice but to laugh at them um or to you know be shocked and scared by them which i think is the kind of same emotion as laughter but not quite and paranoia does that and that's why i like it and in terms of like being a thing where you are with a bunch of people you know playing a game when you're doing like D or like i also have played monster hearts like you get into this like bogged down serious atmosphere a lot of the time where it's like, Oh, we're, we're, we gotta be emotional and we have to have pathos and we gotta tell a story. And it's like, I I don't really, I don't really care about pathos when it's just being put there because you think you have to have it. I like pathos when it's earned. Um, Mm. and I think there were, I think there's at least like two or three moments in this story that you have not gotten to yet where like, I think we did have some pathos and I would like to think we earned it by, you know, being silly and making sex jokes for a couple hours, right? Like, <laughs> um, and, you know, blowing shit up and having terrible, terrible bureaucracy interactions. Um yeah. 
and sort of when you have to live in that for so long, when you have a moment to breathe, that's when you have the characterization. That's when you have the uh, the building of a story and the building of an atmosphere that you can really relate to. And so that's why I like comedy forward. And that's why I like paranoia. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think that's true of a lot of really great writing. I always one of the most insightful things I ever have uh, read about Shakespeare, which my in undergrad, I was one of the big like Shakespeare nerds. But, you know, uh-huh. it's true in a lot of Shakespeare, the jokes and the pathos come like right. You know, they're two sides of the same coin. I think that that is true. They are much more closely linked than a lot of people realize. No, it's the fool, right? Like it, yeah, it's. I exactly. think the 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 funny the thing that's supposed to be funny is actually the most interesting thing structurally as well. Yeah, very very often. And I mean that's Douglas Adams too, right? Like Douglas Adams, like you know he wrote a Hitchhiker's Guide and like it starts with a joke about building a highway through your house that's yeah. blowing up the planet. <laughs> it's very political. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but like. <laughs> It, it's it starts with this like high concept thing, but then it's like, oh, this fucking sucks. Like, oh, shit, all my friends and family are dead. Like that actually is really meaningful. Um, and like there is a moment, there are some moments in that book and those books where you get to kind of think about that and the implications of that. And did it start as a stupid joke about building a highway? Absolutely, it did. Yeah. Uh, if you can uh, discuss without facing, I don't know what, legal or personal... <laughs> repercussions um can you tell us a little bit about what uh inspired the the story that you created specifically for saving 73 jpegs oh absolutely um (laughs) well i will say one thing and you know we did an interview with a cast that we're going to be releasing after the game yeah um where i basically spoil the whole uh gm handbook um so i'm not going to spoil everything but there is um there's a concept in the GM handbook um, called Dave's, D-A-I-V's. Um, and the description in the GM handbook is uh, really cool and really mysterious, even to the, you know, even as they're presenting it to the, a person who's a GM. Um, and basically it involves like, you know, having your ear whispered in and then it's like by another player. And, and this is really weird and high concept and hard to do. And then uh, if you tell the computer about it, uh, you like he instantly kills you and then you like wake up 30 minutes later and you've like got a treason star and basically it's like all of this mystery comes from something that seems kind of strange and innocuous and that's kind of what i like about the paranoia world and so i sort of started there with this plot that we do um Mm. and i i do feel like when i was designing like story for an actual play podcast um i was sort of thinking about how like well it is a story um and like i had gotten to listen some to some of of mice and monsters too so like i got like how matt had written things and how percy was uh dming it and like i was like okay i kind of want to do like i want to go in a little different direction and part of me is like i like that games are games and so like i like that there are win conditions for games and like i did study game design in college ha 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 um (laughs) But like, it's very boring, by the way. Um, Game game theory is so boring. Um, It's so boring and stupid and the best games ignore it. But um, games have win conditions. And so like, I think 
in this story, like I'm incent- trying to incentivize people to uncover the mysteries of this world and the mysteries that they are that are being absolutely, absolutely thrown into their faces um, with like seemingly obvious solutions. But like if they're playing their character, maybe they're not quite so obvious because everyone in this world is like kind of stupid. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> And, like, I think when you're playing, you have to play as, like, kind of stupid um, or, like, kind of naive. And I certainly think that, like, all four of the players, like, did excellent at playing as people who are from this world and who thus, like are a little more open to bullshit just being something that happens um, and also are just like willing to suspend disbelief while also like as a player, you know, being really smart and being like, okay, I want to solve this mystery, (laughs) but I want to solve it in a way that my character would. And also there's points like they get points for doing things Um, like literally the currency in the game is XP points and there's a gamified system where you want to get more um, because like that's how you level up. That's how you get better equipment and a lot are dangled in your face and then taken away from you. And so that is sort of like the fun, like glue that holds the like actual story together. But it's also the fun mechanics of like moment to moment. And it also fuels moment to moment player interactions and player NPC interactions. Um, So like that is how I sort of initially designed this story. What I will say is like the first bit of the game, I separated the party, which is absolutely stupid and you should never do it. (laughs) Um, But I did little sections that I like intended to be 15 minutes and we're like 30 minutes, (laughs) maybe a little longer with each of them where like we set up their character and like got them introduced so that like the audience would get who these people were and that I would get who these people were so that then I could like pit them against each other in more interesting ways. And also just so like the NPCs and the rest of the world could react to them and they also like would know each other and so it's not like getting to know you quite as much because like they do have a getting to know you where they meet each other but they as actors as performers got to meet each other already and so like I thought that was a good way to start things um and I was very regimented and what I will say is like my notes for that those four scenes are half of the notes for the whole campaign. Mm. Um, and then it really just does get into, cause I tried to not make it quite a hallway sort of, um, you'll, you will see what is, you will maybe be able to tell what is and is not a hallway. Um, I was surprised a lot. Um, there are sections, many sections, which I just totally cut. Um, there are many things which someone said something and then an NPC was born into the world and a room was created. Um, <laughs> And we had a whole scene there and and it diverted everything. (laughs) Um, But that's sort of structurally what I thought was interesting for starting very regimented and then telling a story based on what the people, who the people are and what they want to do with a very clear mission in hand. Um, Like they, their society is telling them to do something, but also they're being told to do other things by their common sense and by other people in the game. And like, that's the other thing is that, um, in paranoia and here's something that I, a secret that I will tell you as, as an, as an audience, um, because we don't actually learn it through gameplay, uh, until much later, but I think it'll be useful to know, which is, um, in paranoia, I just told everyone that they may have a mutant power and they may have a secret society. And in reality, they all have both. And that is a rule of paranoia is that everyone has both. Um, Not necessarily all the NPCs have powers. Um, Pretty much all the NPCs are in societies. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, 
every player is a mutant and every player uh, is in a secret society, which means that uh, there pretty much is no way to run the game if you're playing it by the book or roughly by the book without having the complete potential to go off the rails storytelling wise, which I love um, because also like what it allows is for the computer and for the society they live in to be this, um, you know, cyberpunk with a clown nose on uh, satire of bureaucracy and of like the tech industry and of like, you know, the strange, strange, awful, awful visions of the future that people like Elon Musk have and how terrible they would actually be. <laughs> um, and the computer and society get to be that. Um, but secret societies get to be sort of com- a completely different layer on top of that of like, here's real people who are really stupid, who have completely ulterior goals, who are largely selfish and who are trying to fuck each other over. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's about greed. A lot of them want things and they are going to try to fuck the players over or to convince the players to do something for them. So every player pretty much at all times has to make a choice of who they're going to follow because no matter what, they are going to piss someone off with everything they do. And that includes each other. Yeah. (laughs) So, Yeah, this is one of the few, I think, tabletop role-playing games out there that really leans hard on the not just possibility, but I think likelihood of like intra-party conflict and encouragement it's encouraged yes it's it's explicitly encouraged (laughs) i was curious how you uh how how you found that and particularly around the i was just re-listening to the the section where you all created the characters which i feel like is sort of designed to get that energy going um of like Yes. Uh, <laughs> grudges and conflict. And I was curious how you enjoyed that and how you felt it worked. Because it's very unusual, I think. <laughs> I had fun. I, I can only imagine that a lot of it is probably audio poison because, like, it, we're just doing so much math. Like, <laughs> I will say, like, we got very bogged down in math and doing it myself with the people I was with around the table, like, it was very fun. <laughs> like, I really like spending time with Miyako and Corey and Ramana and Todd. They are they are my friends and I like them. And like, it was a great time that, that we had together playing that game. Um, I think character creation, like what I learned was that if I, if I were ever to run a new campaign of Paranoia ever again, like, yeah, yeah, just get through it. <laughs> um, and it probably would be easier to do around a physical table where like you're looking at each other's sheets mm. um, because also you're supposed to be looking at each other's sheets. Um, and that's fine. Like, I think it's kind of an open book game for a lot of it and it's fine. Um, I will say that like, because we have like, we had like friend energy in the room. Um, I don't think it got us angry at each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was re well, like I said, I was re listening to it. And at the end of it, I was sort of like, Oh boy, they're, they're, they were all like very nice to each other. <laughs> like given the setup, I feel like. <laughs> Absolutely. Which, yeah. Well, and the book encourages you to fuck each other over and they like mostly helped each other. Um, there's like one instance where like someone fucked someone else over with like one stat and it was like, all right, whatever. Um, <laughs> because also, and it, this is just because like 
I am kind of a benevolent GM, I guess. Like, I, I like people just sort of saying, like, I want to use the skill I'm good at to do something. But to do so, I have to do something insane that makes no sense. That's going to be really difficult and is going to require me and you to explain something outlandish, which mm-hmm. like. I like that because that's better storytelling and it's fun <laughs> to think about that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and it is, I can still make the game challenging by deciding how difficult something is um, as a GM. But also I like the difficulty as a performer of having to on the fly come up with an elaborate visual description of an inadvisable action being taken like with a wrench like <laughs> right like what what is the what is the action for a violence computers role or whatever the, exactly yeah. and i think we had like a lot of those um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um like a lot of demolitions roles too like uh, because we were destroying a lot of things um and i think that you just have to acknowledge that like when you are trying to get a better result often uh, by doing something that's not like directly the skill, you're going to have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And paranoia is all about unintended consequences, but I think so are most good TTRPGs. Like you do something, but ooh, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> it's not actually as helpful as you thought. Or like it backfires on you. And now you have to deal with this new thing. Yeah. I mean, even in like just creating a character, it's all about choice and consequence, right? <laughs> you know, going to be good at some things and not good at others and that's just the nature of the game i also liked like we did a little different because we decided who our characters were way beforehand Mm, and then basically i set everyone up to go in sort of wanting a certain set of skills but knowing like "Mm, you might actually be terrible at them but you're still playing to this character you created so like we got to figure that out (laughs) and i think i think they figured it out excellently so like it worked out way better than I thought it would. I, I was just curious. Uh, also, this, if I'm not mistaken, was your first experience GMing a game. Is that correct? It was. Yes, I played in. Um, I, I've played like four or five times in um, RPGs, like mostly D and D, 3.5e, 4e. Um, I, I even wrote this down because I think in an earlier version of this interview you had that question. Like uh, in middle school. Uh, I played 3.5 and I was a half elf druid and it was like a shitty campaign where I was being bullied for most of it. Um, in high school, uh, I did, uh, we did, I, with my friends, we did like a very short campaign of 4E when it, like right when it came out or it might've been like right after high school. I forget exactly when it was, but, uh, so I decided to be a dragonborn because that was new except for, I like, didn't like that idea. So I was like, I'm I'm a not dragonborn. I'm not a dragon. I don't have scales. I don't have fire breath. Like they're all I basically I just put the word not in front of everything <laughs> um I sort of dumb Starbucks to the character um and we were sort of all doing this because we thought we were funny uh-huh. um in college I played a human sorcerer um in a campaign that my friend uh, Donnie ran um and he did try to kill me a lot uh, <laughs> which was funny uh and then I played uh Monster Hearts a couple of years ago 
No, it's a ghoul, um, but that which is basically a zombie. But I decided uh, to do uh, basically a homebrew of that class where I was like, okay, so I'm not a zombie. I am uh, the brain of like a hundred year old man who keeps getting put into bodies of teenagers to do market research. Um, so basically, he's like a he's like a really really awful Dorian Gray type character who has never grown up and is still like an immature like idiot teenager while being a hundred years old and completely out of touch. <laughs> um, which like, that was one of the most fun uh, characters I ever got to play. <laughs> um, like both on and off stage. Like that is one of the most fun characters I ever got to play because I was allowed to do something insanely stupid. Yeah. So like going from, you know, being a player who is, I, I can only assume an absolute nightmare to have around the table. <laughs> um, I I did this and GM for the first time. And I will say, like, fortunately, all the players were very generous and wonderful people. Uh, so I didn't have anyone like me who was trying to break everything. I think you sound uh, like a delight, Ben. Mm. <laughs> I'll let my GMs answer that in the comments. Um, Leave us a right into the show. Leave us a review telling us what you thought of Ben. Yes. <laughs> please tell me, please tell me I'm so terrible. Um, I, that's, I get off on that. No, um, uh, <laughs> GMing was hard though. Like yeah. it, it was hard in ways that I didn't expect because like I, as I said earlier, like I made the stupid choice of splitting the party immediately, which like, I felt like I wasn't giving people enough time or enough attention. And so I was like trying to get through them, but I was also like, Oh, but I'm having so much fun doing these. And like whoever's doing it is having a lot of fun. And then we got beyond that and I was like, okay, great. And then I realized like, I am what is very difficult is giving players equal time um, and the sort of the equal ability to affect the story and be mm. part of the story. And what I will say is like my notes sort of saved me because I gave everyone throughout this story like a bunch of points where like, OK, you're in focus now for a second. Um, mm -hmm. Like you're either in focus with the group and you're now kind of in charge, like by my edict or like i'm just seeing that this person has taken over this situation so like i'm gonna throw the next bone to someone who hasn't talked in a while um or who hasn't gotten to do something in a while so like i think that that is that is just running a game which i think i'm now better at for having had to do it for so long um throughout the course of this but was something i was not expecting to be like constantly nervous about <laughs> Yeah, I do think that is um, a useful skill for a GM to have, though, that ability to kind of shift focus and keep everybody involved. I think all of our games so far have done a very good job of that. But it's also, I think, you know, paranoia helps out a little bit in that all of the troubleshooters are kind of starting from roughly the same point, typically. You know, everybody, yes. you know, everybody's read clearance level um so there's a sort of uh equality there that gets a little more comp you know and uh as as our listeners have hopefully heard and as you ben will hear when it comes out you know in yep. uh, apocalypse world in our apocalypse world campaign that just wrapped up uh you know one of the characters is the sort of uh landlord or like uh Oh, shit. I don't know what the what the term would be like the bo the boss. Of I hope the they area. die if they're a landlord. <laughs> the landlord is is slightly incorrect, but <laughs> I, uh, the game term is like a hard holder, if I remember correctly. But they're interesting. They're they're, they're like the boss of an area in the apocalypse. Um, and I think John John did a, who jammed that game did a very good job. Uh, you know, balancing all the character attention, but I think it's a different challenge when the game world puts them in different positions of power. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that's true of like, I, I listen to a lot of actual player podcasts, right? Like, and, <laughs> sure. um, I think you can always find like the character who is properly min maxed being the one who sort of ends up taking point on everything because like, they're the one who's not going to die. Um, yeah. like, I think that like Fun City, which is a podcast I absolutely fucking love, is a great example of that because like there is one character who is incredibly cool and who I love, TK, who is a Decker, who like he uh, he's like an adept Decker and he basically like Bijan Steven, the player who created this character kind of created a character who like ended up having like a lot of skills that he didn't need and not being quite as good in his skills as he should be that he actually uses a lot. (laughs) So like he tries to Mm -hmm. hack a lot and he fails a lot and it's like really demoralizing for the player. Um, And it like makes, I mean, he said this in interviews, like it makes him want to do those things less. Whereas like there is another character, Viv, who is like, she's a, uh, she's a water witch and she like just does like, she has insanely powerful magic. And so she just like, Mm -hmm. she like literally melts a guy and they (laughs) just use that as sort of the like, okay, like she is the only one (laughs) doing, she is doing all the heavy lifting for us. And like she one shot at a boss, uh, like because this character is so much more powerful and the game that they're playing just like circumstantially i think not by design she has found ways to be really powerful in it so like i think that is an example of like even characters who are supposed to technically be on an even playing field like they have the same number of points they're the same level like they were created by players who started at the same time socially they're in the same group but like because one character just like happens to be better suited to the environments they've been in like oops <laughs> that character is all powerful um and like i think like in the adventure zone like you see that happening with like magnus who like you know, Travis McElroy lies about all of his roles and that certainly helps him a lot. But like also he has created a pretty powerful character and mm. you hear in those games, in those shows, one actor, one player sort of taking over a little bit <laughs> and not necessarily intentionally, but certainly as someone who like plays games, I'm always like, oh, but let someone else have a chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, any last kind of thoughts or reflections on your experience with paranoia that you want to share for people who might be thinking about playing it or just enjoying listening to the game as it starts coming out over the next few weeks? Oh God. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious. Um, I don't think I asked you this. Um, when you were introduced to this world, like what did you think that it like would look like and feel like in the nature of it would be like? Um, I guess I, thought of it as kind of uh like i i guess i imagined it as sort of gritty and drab but with these like extremely violent bursts of color and energy (laughs) (laughs) you know both like aesthetically in terms of like you know gray corridors and so on but with the bright red like the brightly colored jumpsuits and also like becomes speed racer right yeah kind of (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah like And that's what I think is so interesting to me is I think anyone listening to this and I think probably all four of the players and like me certainly have different visual pictures. And something that I found Mm -hmm. like really uh, challenging was creating a very, very strong visual picture, particularly of like 
And this is something I'm curious, like to hear audience feedback on and to hear like your feedback on, um, is just like particularly describing like this AR world where like these Mm -hmm. people have like a bunch of fucking stats in their eyes at all time. And like indicators telling them to do things, um, what does it look like to you? Like when you're hearing those description, like what does it look like? And I wonder if we're sort of seeing the same thing in our mind's eye and like, you know, clearly I did it well enough that no one got like terribly confused, <laughs> but it isn't, it is a world so unlike ours in that manner that I realized halfway through creating it, like we're all going to just sort of have a wild imagination fest about this. Yeah. I think I, I so I'll, to answer your question, I'll just say I never felt a like lost or like I couldn't visualize what you're describing or anything. But I also think that's kind of part of the appeal of, uh, you know, games like this and tabletop role playing games in general is that <laughs> you can all be like in the same world, but also have a wildly different, you know, imaginations of what exactly that looks like, you know, and that's Absolutely. I mean, it's like reading a novel i guess it's simultaneously well this aspect is not like reading a novel but it is simultaneously social and like very very kind of intimate and private because it happens in in your head yeah I, but i will say though like with the adventure zone for an example um listening i listened to that before i ever read any of the graphic novels but then i have started reading the graphic novels and like they look almost exactly like i imagined it um mm. And I think that's partially because D&D is, and I mean, it's, it's very homebrew D&D, but like D&D is so ingrained culturally that we have an idea of what things should roughly look like. And also like, you know, Tolkien fantasy races too. Like yeah. dwar- we know what dwarves look like. Um, so like you, you describe a dwarf, you're like, okay, yeah, I got it. <laughs> like uh, short, a lot of hair, beard, like sucky. Uh, great. <laughs> um, Scottish. I don't know. Uh, but then I think you get into these systems and these stories that are sort of less mainstream or less universal. And then that's where, like, I think the like the imagination has to do a lot more work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for talking with us, Ben. Uh, and thanks for GMing. Saving 73 JPEGs I desperately need. It's a pleasure <laughs> and it was a pleasure. Percy here, popping in to give a shout out to a new partner of ours, 4615 Theater Company. At 4615 Theater, the artists believe that theater is everywhere. With 4615 Go, their new season of innovative programs, you can experience the spirit of theatricality in musical concerts, a phone call, a video game, and even in tabletop games. That's right, currently 4615 is streaming Tabletop Tuesdays with John John Johnson absolutely free on their Facebook page every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Love Shakespeare? D&D? So does 4615. Join DM John John Johnson as he and a group of DC actors adventure through Shakespeare's Macbeth. You can also check out the rest of their lineup of new innovative programming at 4615 Theater. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis. Editing and sound design by Anthony Sertel Dean. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DNDramaNerds and on Facebook at Dungeons and Drama Nerds. For cast bios, head to our website, DungeonsandDramaNerds.com. Tune in next week as we continue saving 73 JPEGs I desperately need.